BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. The Bowery Boys, episode 58, Delmonico's The First Restaurant. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. Tom is out to lunch this week. Our topic, we are returning to one of my favorite concepts, the topic of food. Now, according to the New York City Department of Health, believe it or not, the city has 20,000 restaurants. However, the restaurant that started it all was Delmonico's Restaurant. The current incarnation of Delmonico's is at 56 Beaver Street in the Financial District, just steps away from the Stock Exchange and Federal Hall. Delmonico's is considered New York's first real restaurant, at least in the context that we can understand today. It sets the rules for fine dining. It came up with basic concepts and dishes that we still use today and turned the idea of going out to eat into a mainstay of New York's social interaction. So you can basically blame them for that really expensive birthday party you had with your friends and any romantic candlelight dinners that you later regretted. But Delmonico's only came along in 1827. So what exactly were New Yorkers eating before then? Well, through most of the city's history, eating wasn't exactly considered something that you did in public. People ate in their homes, they raised their own food, or they went out and they bought or bartered it from markets. The first places that really served food then were those homes away from home, inns and taverns. Back in Dutch New York, taverns were all-purpose centers of socializing. In fact, New Amsterdam's City Tavern, built in 1641, morphed into what could technically be considered New York City's very first city hall. Here you had drinking, fraternizing, governing, but probably only rudimentary food service of any kind. Things improved slightly during the British phase in early colonial New York. Tavern owners would regularly provide meals, but they were often set based upon what ingredients the tavern owner just happened to acquire that day. The meals were without variation, meaning everyone basically ate the same thing, and most likely it probably all tasted really foul. There were some exceptions, like the Tavern of John Clapp in 1690, which travelers came far and wide for such morsels as, quote, a dish of roasted lamb and salad, a dish of roasted chicken, and a dish of tarts, unquote. Fancier taverns, like the Province Arms, owned by the Delancey family, were equipped to throw large private banquets. But make no mistake, the star of the show at a tavern was the drink, not the food. 
When there was food, it was served at a set time, one price, and no variation. Taverns and later more fashionable coffee houses were more known as the gathering places of gentlemen. France's Tavern, which you can still visit a version of downtown today, served as a meeting house for early revolutionaries. There's even reports that France's would deliver food to George Washington during the war, possibly making it the first catering business in New York. The Tontine Coffee House of 1792, which was located at 82 Wall Street, served New York's newest obsession, coffee, and became such a hot spot for the gentlemen of the day that the very first New York Stock Exchange was born here. But again, these places would serve food, but as a side feature, not as a central tenet. By the early 19th century, you could also pick up a meal at an oyster house or oyster cellars that proliferated throughout the city. These were set up in basements or even directly on wharves themselves, where for a set amount, you could pull up a stool and enjoy a big heaping plate of oysters in dingy, often unsanitary conditions delivered right off the boat. New Yorkers were certainly aware of the ideas of haute cuisine by this point. The French had invented the notion of the restaurant as far back as 1765. In fact, the phrase fine dining throughout the 19th century would actually be synonymous with French cuisine. When the Marquis de Lafayette came back to New York in 1824, he was feted with a celebration at Castle Garden, but New Yorkers were horrified because there were no eating establishments in New York even close to what the Marquis was used to in France at this time. It's not surprising to learn that New York's introduction to fine dining comes from a wine merchant. Giovanni de Monaco was a Swiss merchant who had a fortune transporting cigars and Spanish wine to America. He also happened to be in dock, believe it or not, in New York during Lafayette's visit. In 1824, he decided to open up a wine bottler in New York himself, importing wines from Spain and France in casks and then bottling them himself there in his shop. Three years later, with his brother Pietro, they opened the very first Delmonico's on 21st William Street. Not a restaurant, but was actually a confectionery and wine shop that served New Yorkers cigars, candies, its very first French pastries, and its very first hot chocolate. By the way, I'll be saying the words the very first a whole lot in this podcast. The first Demonico's was a very small affair, just six little tables, but it was immediately successful. Believe it or not, one of its selling points was the fact that it was clean, immaculately clean. You have to remember how dirty the city is at this time. Well, they just they kept it clean. Pietro's wife also worked behind the counter, which was sort of an oddity back in the day, considering, you know, almost all the clientele were men. Giovanni and Pietro, now anglicizing their names to John and Peter, fatefully decided to expand their business in 1831. They leased out the building next door, and to help them out, they shipped over their 19-year-old nephew, and his name is Lorenzo de Monaco. Together, the family opens Delmonico's and Restaurant Francois, which served New Yorkers the very first New York business lunch. Some of the family's innovations and tips, which they borrowed from the French, sound so obvious today if you're going to start up a restaurant. They debuted the idea of a menu, of a whole selection of items that a person could choose as many or as few of. Each item had its own price. There was no set, like, overall price just for eating there. There was not a set time that food would be served. 
In a tavern, for instance, dinner time might only be served once or twice a night. At Delmonico's, you could come in at any time during business hours and just order from this fancy menu. And then there was the food itself. New York, which is a British property for decades, we're still eating like Brits. And you know how world-famous British cuisine is. Well, these new French dishes, previously available only to an upper class with money to import a French chef, caused a sensation. Delmonico's also specialized in this wild foreign notion of fresh ingredients. The Delmonico's would be such sticklers about this that in 1834, they actually bought a farm in today's Williamsburg in Brooklyn to specially grow for their restaurant. And over the next few years, they would debut such foreign items as endives, artichokes, and even tomatoes into their dishes, things the majority of New Yorkers had never even seen on a plate. Interestingly, John and Lorenzo weren't chefs themselves, and Peter was only a pastry chef. But they were able to lure real French chefs, presumably with nice salaries and the promise of being the big chef in a small pond. To pay for everything, Delmonico's began raising prices. It was easily the most expensive place to eat by 1835. Far from driving away customers, though, this distinguished the restaurant Francais as a place of exclusive and sublime cuisine in a period of New York's history when it was racing to compete with other world cities. The only early setback to the Delmonico's was that common enemy of all New Yorkers, fire. The Great Fire of 1835 completely destroyed the restaurant. They moved operations to 76 Broad Street in a lodging house, which they then refitted as a restaurant. This, too, would eventually burn down. But these fires only laid seed for the Delmonico family to build their biggest and best establishment a three-story restaurant with an open ballroom at the address where the current Delmonico stands today, nephew Lorenzo, the most extravagant and clever of the partners, must have been in control of the arrangements of this building because this building is beautiful and ornate and it's finished out front with these marble columns that were allegedly brought over from the ruins of Pompeii. The cellar could hold up to 16,000 bottles of wine. By 1841, Lorenzo was running the family restaurant himself, and out from under his uncle's rather traditional ideas, he began to change Delmonico's into that century's version of what we would call today a hot spot, ramping up its already growing reputation. Lorenzo, almost never seen without a cigar between his teeth, would go down to the Fulton Street markets himself before the sun came up every morning at four to personally scour the meats and produce. Eventually, the menu would include up to 346 entries with 40 hors d'oeuvres, 29 beef dishes, 27 veal dishes, and 48 different fish varieties. This mouthwatering array of exotic foods attracted wealthy foreigners fresh from the nearby ports, businessmen, and curious New Yorkers just looking for a unique meal, and maybe even to see and be seen. Eventually, this location of Delmonico's would be known to New Yorkers simply as the Citadel. Lorenzo's draconian attention to running a clean shop often shocked New Yorkers. When the founder of Delmonico's, his uncle John, died in a hunting accident on Long Island, society folk were flummoxed when a notice came up on the door at Delmonico's saying the restaurant would only be closed for a couple days and that the kitchen would be open to take orders. Apparently in the mid-19th century, this was seen as being a little cold. 
But guess what? New Yorkers got over it, and Lorenzo followed on after them, opening new offshoot DeMonica restaurants as the upper class kept moving uptown to Chambers Street in 1856, Fifth Avenue and East 14th Street at the heart of Ladies Mile in 1862, and Madison Square Park in 1876. In total, there would be about nine or ten different DeMonica's locations opening and closing at different intervals, and with each move, the dining rooms would get larger and more lavish. Perhaps the restaurant's greatest distinction in the world of restaurants today is that it, along with its rival, the restaurant at John Jacob's Astor House, was the recipient of the very first restaurant review in the New York Times, published January 1st, 1859. Now here's one of the more intriguing passages. We are made nervous by the sneerful smirk of the waiter if we order the wrong wine in the wrong place. The Demonican Creed being the right wine in the right place. You might put the meanest waiter at Demonico's on the rack. You might tear him limb from limb, but you could never induce him to swerve from his faith in this particular. An ill-advised person once permitted himself to call for beer with his soup. It is due to human nature to say that such an atrocity was never before committed in these classic halls, that a brother waiter was near enough to catch the insulted servitor as he swooned and fell. As I said, this would be the social hotspot for decades, attracting every major name of New York's politics, society, and culture. The Prince of Wales and the exiled Napoleon III, Mark Twain and Oscar Wilde, most of the politicos of Tammany Hall would lord over private dining rooms closed off with a red velvet curtain, swilling the finest brandy and French wines, the air thick with cigars, and all procured here at Demonico's. In 1863, a group of New York journalists held a great party for visiting writer Charles Dickens, who gave an after-dinner monologue that happened to be published throughout the country the next day. In 1870, the restaurant would host New York Society's first debutante ball held outside a private mansion. And the next year, notorious Tammany Hall leader Boss Tweed threw a sumptuous banquet for his daughter's Grace Church wedding, a celebration so shockingly opulent that it would eventually lead to Tweed's downfall. And that banquet, of course, would be held in the Demonico Ballroom. Throughout the 1870s, every major family, the Astors, the Skirmerhorns, the Van Rensselaers, all of them hosted huge banquets. Perhaps the most lavish of all of them was the 1873 dinner for 72 guests of the Luckemeyer family. Forget the food. Sitting in the middle of the table was a 30-foot lake. That's right, you heard me. A lake was in the middle of the table, 30 feet, with a waterfall included that had four real-life swans floating in it. The diners sat around the table in awe and must have done a little bit of a double take when, during dinner according to reports, two of the swans started mating. But beyond the notoriety and wealth of others, Demonico's would make a celebrity out of Lorenzo himself. In his obituary, the New York Times called him the most famous restaurateur and caterer in this country. He was so well-liked that when he unwisely invested in a failed oil drilling scheme in Brooklyn and went entirely bankrupt, wealthy New Yorkers blocked any takeover bids and loaned Lorenzo the money to get back on his feet. He almost even ran for mayor and probably would have won. 
More notably, the chefs that came from here would become world famous as well. By the late 19th century, many of the great rival restaurants and hotels in the city would have at least one former employee of Delmonico's. Its most famous chef may be Charles Ranhofer, who served from 1862 to 1896 and literally wrote the book on French cooking. It was called The Epicurean, and it featured 3,500 recipes. And this book would influence chefs and French cooking all over the country. The restaurant's maitre d' Oscar Cherky would be lured from Demonico's to become the head of the kitchen at the Waldorf Astoria, whereas, quote, Oscar of the Waldorf, he would be the inventor of a Waldorf salad. But many dishes would be invented at Demonico's as well. Eggs Benedict and Baked Alaska are both rumored to have begun in the kitchens of the Demonico. In 1876, a sea captain named Ben Wenberg prepared a lobster dish here that was then christened with his name, Lobster Wenberg. However, when Wenberg had a falling out with the management, Lorenzo, cheekily enough, superimposed the W and the N in his name, renaming the dish Lobster Newberg, which we have today. Now, Lorenzo died in 1881, with most of the restaurant affairs passed on to his heirs. They would eventually move Delmonico's to its most uptown location at 44th Street and 5th Avenue in 1896. Even there, they would break from convention, allowing smoking in the restaurant and debuting music in the form of live orchestras. Most shockingly for the time, women would be allowed to dine alone, at least during the day, and there would even be a separate nighttime dining room for these, you know, quote, night out with the gals. But the 20th century wouldn't be that great to the Delmonico brand, however. They were forced to close some locations simply out of competition. By this time, New York had dozens of restaurants with world-class food, and many more were far more socially attractive. Sadly, in 1917, the downtown location, that great building called the Citadel, was closed. Eventually, the DeMonico family had to sell the remaining restaurants to a wealthy and apparently unlucky restaurateur named Edward L.C. Robins. He apparently didn't have the foresight enough not to purchase a French restaurant in 1919, the year that the U.S. government ratified Prohibition, because, I mean, what's French food without wine? Apparently, it's not much. They attempted to survive, surreptitiously serving booze, but they were busted in 1921, and they finally closed their doors with one final meal on May 21st, 1923. So the Delmonico's connection with the restaurant Delmonico's is over. But others would try to carry on the name throughout the century. Wouldn't be quite the same. The current incarnation that you can find on Beaver Street today has only been open since 1989. However, they have done an excellent job in trying to at least recapture the original spirit in a 1.5 million renovation. Its heydays are long, long, long past, but you can still get that famous Delmonico steak there, probably some lobster Newburg. But as for mating swans in the middle of your dinner table, well, you're probably going to have to fish some of those out of Central Park Lake and bring them over yourself. And so that's the story of Delmonico's Restaurant, one of the most famous culinary institutions in the 19th century. I hope you enjoyed it. Please visit our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, for lots of other different stories and some pictures from this podcast as well. Tom will be back next week. We have a topic that has been one of our most asked about topics. So I think you guys are really going to love it. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.